0: Church of Christ presents Beholding the Face of God. The reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman presented on Sunday, October 29th, 2023. Please pray with me. Holy One, make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts acceptable to you, for surely you are the source and ground of all our being. Amen. Madwoman, crone, recluse, the people where I live now see me some way, but they don't see me who I am, and so I'm lonely. A sentence from Marilyn French's book, The Women's Room. I couldn't put my finger on my very ancient copy of that book, so the first part of that sentence is a paraphrase, but I have never forgotten the second part of the sentence since the first time I read it. They see me some way, but they don't see me who I am, and so I am lonely. It's a sentence I read first while we were living in rural Virginia, about an hour away from Charlottesville, where I was still a graduate student. I was mostly done with my classwork, and I was meant to be engrossed in preparing for my oral exams and writing my dissertation proposal. David had accepted a call to a tiny little church in the Shenandoah Valley. So we moved into the parsonage which had a beautiful view of the Massanutten Peak out the front window and the whole Blue Ridge Mountains out the back. It was a gorgeous place and it was a beautiful little church. It was a little church full of people, lovely people. Every one of whom had lived their whole life in that valley. Every one of whom had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who also had lived their whole lives in that valley. Getting oriented to that community meant not only learning names and family connections and learning where people lived, but learning where their home place was and their parents' home place and the farm that the first ancestor had farmed. They were rooted there. I want to stress again that they were a lovely group of people. Before I say that having learned that I grew up in a Philadelphia suburb and went to seminary in New York City, that not only did I enjoy that, but that my mother had grown up in New York City, was raised there, they never asked me a single other question about myself again, except of course when I would be having my first child. (laughs) That they wanted to know often. They saw me some way, Yankee, urban, lefty, foreigner, but they didn't see me who I am. And so I was lonely. I was utterly disoriented and undone by my loneliness. I felt completely unseen, and being unseen, it became difficult for me to see myself. I felt like a ghost. I remember one time, early on, standing in a circle of people at coffee hour, might have been even our second Sunday there in the valley, and someone mentioned that they were a bit tired because they'd been into the city the day before. And I assumed that that meant that they'd been up to D.C., which was just a couple of hours north, the closest big city. So I mentioned that my sister lived in D.C. They stood and looked at me aghast. How how horrible for me. (laughs) Before someone gently corrected me and said, she meant she was in Harrisonburg yesterday. A city of 30,000, 10 miles down the road. (laughs) A wiser person would have known to keep quiet after that. Mm -hmm. But I was not a wiser person. I was a lonely person. And so when someone mentioned an article in the Sunday paper, before I could think, I blurted out, oh, is there someplace in the village where I can buy the Sunday New York Times? I'm really missing the book review and the puzzle. They looked at me as if I had asked for something almost obscene. And then, because they were kind people and gentle people, they all looked away and pretended I hadn't spoken. (laughs) I don't mean to paint this group of people who were truly big-hearted and kind-hearted as backward in any way. They were simply rooted where they were and beyond that was just not part of their world. So I struggled to be part of their world. They couldn't see me who I am, and so I was lonely. It took me a long time to recover and reset from that, but it has never been repeated in my life. But I've never forgotten that hollowed out feeling. Now, right now, the US Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has identified loneliness as an epidemic in our country one profound enough that he has decided that it ought to be classed as a health crisis, and it needs to be identified as that and addressed as that. He wrote this. Our epidemic of loneliness and isolation has been an underappreciated public health crisis that has harmed individual and societal health. Our relationships are a source of healing and well-being hidden in plain sight. One that can help us live healthier, more fulfilled, and more productive lives. Given the significant health consequences of loneliness and isolation, we must prioritize building social connection the same way that we prioritize other health concerns like tobacco or obesity or substance use disorders. Together, we can build a country that's healthier, more resilient, less lonely, more connected. What is the greatest commandment the Pharisees demanded of Jesus? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving our neighbor begins with seeing them not just with labels that sum them up neatly for easy cataloging and usage, but seeing who they know and believe themselves to be. Sometimes this happens fluidly, almost automatically. You meet someone who just gets you. They get your humor and your cultural references, your enthusiasms, even the cadence of your speech makes them feel at home. You feel welcome in each other's presence. You can see and be seen. You might even describe it as feeling loved, whether romantic or platonic. It's a form of love to see and be seen in that way. And we do tend to think of this, of love, as a feeling that just comes, spontaneous and free, and it flows. It's a feeling that arises out of our own sense of kinship and affinity. What we don't think of it as as a discipline, as a practice, or an exercise. We don't like to think of love as requiring effort. In our culture, in fact, if love is effortful, it makes us suspicious that that's not real love. You don't really love that person if you have to work at it. We don't think of love as a choice. We think of it as something that happens to us. Debbie Thomas put it like this recently. We fall in love. We insist that love is blind, that it happens at first sight, that it breaks our hearts, that its course never runs smooth. We talk and think about love as if we have little power or agency over it. But Jesus did not say, I sure hope love happens to you. He said, love is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus linked our love of God with our love of neighbor. The two are intertwined. To have one is to have the other, and to neglect one is to neglect the other. If, when the world feels askew and our hearts are anxious, as now, if we start feeling confused about loving God in a world that feels unjust and bleak, we can find our way back, by loving other people. If, when the world feels askew and we find it difficult to love other people, we find ourselves wary and suspicious and angry all of the time, we can find our way back to loving other people by centering down into the love of God that we can find deep in our own soul and with each other. We don't need to wait to fall in love, though, For the record, I am not against that. We can decide to practice loving. We can work to develop it like any other skill that we have. And I think the beginning of this kind of love is a form of paying attention. And it can begin before speech even enters in the way that we look at one another. In a recent Everything Happens episode, Kate Bowler quoted Jürgen Moltmann. As an old man, he was describing his relationship with his wife. For those who don't know, he's a quite famous um, theologian. He was quite old and kind of bent. He had big, bushy eyebrows. And he said, he was talking about his relationship with his wife, and he said, I am not loved because I am so handsome. But when my wife looks at me, I am beheld. Kate described another person, her interview partner, David Brooks's wife, Anne, and she said, Anne expects every person in front of her to be poetry. She imagines beauty, and then I think she gets that reflected back to her. Brooks added, what I, th- I think what I've learned from her is that we think the most important part of getting to know someone is conversation. And to be a good conversationalist is essential, but before you even get to that, you have to be good at gazing at another person. You have to bring the right kind of attention. If I bring a cold or objective attention to you, you feel cold and objectified. But if I bring a warm and loving attention, you can bloom. And he told a story about being in Waco, Texas. He was meeting with a woman named LaRue Dorsey, a teacher who described herself as a strict disciplinarian. She liked that about herself. She said, I love my students enough to discipline them. And then a mutual friend of theirs came into the room, a pastor, wonderful guy, the kind of guy who, when he couldn't get homeless folks to come to his church, opened a church in the underpass where they lived and called it Church Under the Bridge. This wonderful, beautiful man with a big heart came into the room, and he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders, and he shakes her way harder than you should shake a (laughs) 93-year-old. And he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best. I love you. And this stiff, strict, firm, stiff upper lip disciplinarian turned into a nine-year-old child with bright eyes, beheld and beloved because of how she had been looked at. Brooks concludes the story by saying the moral of the story is pay attention to people more like Jimmy and less like me. He, of course, is an observationalist, observational journalist who observes people to understand their patterns. But when Jimmy sees somebody, he sees someone made in the image of God. When he looks at them, he's looking a little into the face of God. He's looking at somebody with an immortal soul and of infinite value. And dignity. When we meet a stranger, the question in their mind is Am I of value to you? Am I a priority here in any way? We can begin to answer that question before we even open our mouths with our eyes. This is how we begin to practice loving by first attending to other people as if we expect to see the face of God reflected there by looking with attention and expectation that we will see another human being. I think this, I've been thinking about this all week long and and with the world in such a terrible state, I I wondered, does it make sense to talk about this kind of intimate one-to-one, face-to-face encounter? And the answer has to be yes, because we have to learn to see all other people As human people. The practice of love continues with attending to the other person's words. Obviously you can't just continue looking at each other, but we have to remember to ask questions rather than assuming we know, rather than summing somebody up with, she's urban, she's northern, she's a Libby, we know who she is. We have to actually listen. We sometimes think that we can intuit another person's perspective, either by the way they look, or the first words out of their mouth, or but what we know about people like them. But you can't say, I know that person's perspective. You have to ask. You have to ask them, what are you seeing here? What are you experiencing? And you have to attend to the conversation that unfolds. It's true with our family and our friends, And it's true also when we are wanting to stand as allies with people in justice movements. We love best when we listen for how the other person is experiencing the world instead of assuming we already know, even if we're assuming with a a heart full of care and tenderness for them, assuming may take us down the wrong road. We have to... we, We. we mustn't assume that the allies that we hope for all think and hope in identical ways. They're not a monolith, no matter who they are. We we have to guard ourselves from assuming that the opponents of our hoped-for allies all think and hope exactly alike. After looking and asking and listening, of course comes acting in ways that tend to the other person's best good. And the secret that Jesus knew about this was that loving others will help us to love ourselves. That when we see ourselves being loving, we are caught up in the lovableness and the burden of our own isolation is lifted. So the answer to feeling lonely and isolated and unseen and therefore perhaps unworthy is to care for someone else. This sequence of attending and listening seems to me to hold true for practicing and perfecting the skill of loving in all our relationships, beginning with our closest family, those we fell in love with, but then also have to live with, whose beauty we see, but whose flaws are also in the house with us. From there, where it flows most easily to our friend circle, our congregation, our community, the like-minded people we hang out with but I've been thinking about this especially at a time when the polarization of the country continues to deepen. I know that I have to work not to assume the worst motives for people whose political positions I find abhorrent. I have immediately sometimes leapt to the first mistake of assuming that everyone on the other side of the aisle from my preferred position is identical to each other that they voted the same way, so they must think the same way and experience life the same way and have the same motivations. And I don't know them, so I don't know that that's true about them. These are things that I have made up. If I persist in holding on to my assumptions, it makes it almost impossible to look at them with the expectation of seeing the face of God. How can I love Then I have to ask, but how can I love someone if their political commitments are harmful to me and to people I love? If they see a vision of America, a vision, for instance, of a white Christian nationalist America, that I find anathema. Attempting to listen for the fear behind the anger and to steep in God's love and to try to act in loving ways, this is the way that I can... Think about how to love someone who frightens me. I was heartened by the words of Bishop um, Charleston this week about loving the world defiantly and refusing to give up hope. He wrote, is there such a thing as defiant love? I believe so because I feel it. The more the world sinks into struggle, the more intense my love becomes. I defy the headlines from owning history, and against all odds, I am determined that mercy and peace shall prevail. I will not give up, go away, or be quiet. My love for this earth and all her people is non-negotiable. My hope, more stubborn still. And I think it is that kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. It is not a love that says whatever the other person does is fine, it is a love that says the other is not a monster they are a human being who is hurting other human beings and I must stand in God's love to open up Jesus calls us to love with a stubborn hope a stubborn defiant hope to root ourselves like a tree beside the water of God's instruction and God's love and to thrive in that loving because the world is a harmful place. Harmful things are happening all the time. But being caught up in rage and hatred for the harm doers will not help those who are being harmed. Our call is to help those who are being harmed and to work to stop the harm, not to hate those who are doing the harm because it won't stop them and it won't protect those who are in harm's way. The call to love can sometimes sound like like Pollyanna, but the call to love is a call to stand for justice for all the people. It's a call to stand with those who are being harmed, and it's a call to, to call those who are doing the harm back to their humanity. I invite us all to take a deep breath And remember a time when you were most seen. When the person beholding you was beholding the face of God in you. And to carry that into the world with us as we encounter other people in our neighborhood, other people on our news feeds, other people in the world. Beholding the face of God.